Chapter Five, Part One of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return of the Prodigal. Conrad and Mrs. Tunner returned to the house about five o'clock. The housekeeper set about preparing the afternoon coffee, and as she did so, her thoughts went back to her son's last letter. "You can be easy about me," she repeated half aloud while a sad smile flitted across her pale face. These words gave her renewed hope and comfort, although there was nothing to tell her whether they indicated his innocence in regard to the occurrences in the greenhouse or had reference merely to his present safety. She did not know where he had posted the letter to Katie's sister, for she had not seen the envelope. Carl had not told her where he was, so she could not write to him. But she was not anxious to do so, she realized that she was probably being watched by the police, and any move on her part to communicate with Carl might be dangerous to the latter, for even if her worst suspicions were not justified, he must have done something wrong, that was certain. And this wrong thing, whatever it was, had been done on the night of the ninth of September, or shortly afterwards, for it was several days after that that he had sent a messenger to her asking her to meet him in the coffee-cellar and to bring money for him, as he was obliged to leave Vienna at once. She could only hope and pray that whatever might be the reason for his flight, it would not be the one terrible thing she feared. Shortly after she had carried up the coffee tray to Miller's sitting-room, he sent down word for her to come up again, as he had something to say to her. She ascended the stairs mechanically, and found Mueller seated at his desk in the cosy room. He held a newspaper in his hand, and there were several more heaped up on the side of the desk. The lamp was already lit, although there was still some daylight outside. "'You sent for me, sir?' said Mrs. Tunner, walking slowly over to the desk. Mueller raised his head to greet her, and his left hand fell carelessly on an open newspaper that lay near the edge of the desk. The paper fell to the ground. Mrs. Tunner moved to bend down for it, her hand outstretched. Then she stopped as if suddenly turned to stone and her left hand slowly extended itself with a gesture of hiding something from her own gaze. Her eyes widened as they rested on the top of the desk, and her face was ghastly pale. She gave one deep, gasping breath, then fell forward unconscious in the arms of the man who sprang up to catch her. "'I didn't expect it would have that effect,' murmured Mueller as he rubbed her temples with water and then started for the next room in search of something stronger." but before he reached the threshold he heard a deep sigh behind him. He turned back to the sofa. Mrs. Tunner was conscious again, but she lay there motionless, her wide-open eyes full of the same horror as before. "'Where am I? Who are you? Who are you?' The words came low from between her trembling lips. Her eyes never left the edge of the desk, on which lay a bright-colored silk muffler. The master of the house drew up a chair to the sofa and sat down upon it. "'My name is Joseph Mueller, as you know,' he said, "'and it's also the truth that I am living retired on my income. "'We did not lie to you in that respect. "'But if we had told you that I am a detective, "'you probably would not have entered my service. "'Is this not so, Mrs. Tunner?' "'No, don't move. "'And now, drink this water,' Mueller continued in a more friendly tone "'as he laid his hand gently on hers. "'Don't try to hold back your tears. "'They may relieve you.' Then we can talk about your son, Carl. He rose from his chair and went to the desk to lock the muffler in one of its drawers. 
Mrs. Tunner leaned her head on the arm of the sofa and wept bitterly. Mueller's soft heart was torn with pity for the unhappy woman. He retreated to the depths of the window niche and waited there until the first spasm of her sorrow and fright had passed. A sudden noise behind him made him turn. Mrs. Tunner had risen from the sofa so hastily that the glass on the silver tray on the little table in front of her jarred loudly. Well, said Mueller, turning his serious eyes full on the excited woman. She stood erect, her hands clenched, her eyes flaming, and hissed between her gasping sobs. Oh, it's cruel, it's horribly cruel, to force a mother to betray her own child in this way. Then you have something to betray? The words came quietly and slowly. The woman staggered and grew even more pale. Her mind seemed frozen, she could not master her thoughts. She grew dizzy and caught at the arm of the sofa to support herself. In the haze in her brain she felt Mueller's hand on her arm and heard his calm and gentle voice saying, "'I am not your enemy, Mrs. Tunner. I am nobody's enemy, and if I ever can help anyone who is in trouble I always do it. I have such deep sympathy for the fear, the shame, the despair of the captured criminal, that I am often obliged to help him to relieve the pressure of my own feelings.' Therefore you need not be afraid of me, and it will be better for yourself as well as for your son if you tell me the truth. While speaking he had pressed Mrs. Tunner gently down onto the sofa again. She looked at him, still with the hanging horror in her eyes, and breathed low. I... I don't know the truth. You do not? I do not know what happened in that dreadful night. I know nothing about it. Mueller's voice was cooler as he asked quickly at a random shot. You do not even know that your son climbed the wall to come to you that evening? Mrs. Tunner pressed her lips tight together, and her eyes dropped. Finally, she said, Yes, I know that one thing, but that does not prove anything. She spoke with a pause between each word, as if fighting for strength. One thing it proves, replied Mueller, and that is that your Carl came to you secretly on the very night of the mysterious occurrence in the greenhouse. Why shouldn't a son visit his mother? stammered the terrified woman. A son does not usually climb walls to get to his mother, replied the detective. Although this is an unusual case, and therefore— Oh, my God! If only I could do something to explain it, cut in Mrs. Tunner. You fixed some supper for your son, continued Mueller. Yes, I did. He was cold and hungry. I gave him an old woolen vest that Mr. Erlock had done with. That was why he forgot his muffler. Mrs. Tunner's voice was firmer now, and just a little defiant. Those are unimportant details, said Mueller with a smile. The main point is, why did he come to you in such secrecy that night? The cold supper and the old vest you gave him would hardly be the reason for his climbing the wall. He wanted something more, Mrs. Tunner. You surely must know that sooner or later we will find out why your son came to you that evening. It will be much better for you to tell me now, yourself." "'But suppose I will not tell you,' murmured the unhappy woman. Mueller bent forward and lowered his voice. "'Then you know what my duty demands, if you will not speak.' "'What? What is your duty?' she asked, shivering. "'It is my duty to tell the authorities that your son was in the Erlock house that night, and that you know of it.' "'Well, then, what will happen then?' "'You will be arrested at once.' "'Why?' you ask.' Mrs. Tunner covered her face with her hands and sat for a few moments in silence. Finally she spoke. 
If I tell you all that I know, the only thing I know, must you then go to the authorities? No, for then I could take the responsibility about being silent for a while yet. I will then know by your own confession that your son was in the greenhouse that night, and no one else need know it for a while. And as yet I am the only person who knows it. You, you alone know it? murmured Mrs. Tunner, slipping to her knees and holding out her hands, clasped in pleading. And you will not say anything? Oh, I know you will not. And you won't force me to speak? Your heart is so good. You are too kind, too noble, to force a despairing mother to give up her only child in this way. Then you will not speak? No, no, I can't, I can't. Very well, then, I must do without your assistance. Assistance? Did you really think? Did you really believe? I believe that you would talk to me freely. I believe that you yourself really do not know what happened that night, and therefore I cannot think that you, his mother, would believe the worst of your son. But I do not. You must, or else you would talk freely with me. You would do everything you can to clear him from this suspicion. But I have cast no suspicion on him. Yes, you have. You are doing it through your silence. You surely ought to know better than anyone else what might be expected of your son. You need not talk if you do not want to. I will follow up your son, and I will find him, for I usually find those I seek. You can go now if you want to. You can even leave my house if you desire it. You are not a prisoner here, but I warn you that as soon as you do go, it is my duty to tell the authorities, to let them know that you believe the worst of your son, that you know where he is, and that you will probably find some means to help him to a further flight, as you have already helped him to leave Vienna. You know that too, breathed Mrs. Tunner. Yes, I know it. He thanks you for it himself. You know that too, she repeated dazed. Then you have... I opened your trunk. Yes, I did it. It was my duty, for I have been officially engaged to investigate the matter of Mr. Erlock's disappearance. And what did you find out from my trunk? The woman queried again, in a tone of bitter contempt. Only that you are a woman whose life has seen terrible reverses and great struggle and sorrow, replied Mueller gravely, also that you have the misfortune to be the mother of a good-for-nothing son, who has already caused you great trouble and anxiety. But I, and that is the difference between us, I cannot yet believe the very worst of your son. You can't? You can't? You don't believe, then, that he— her eyes softened, the tension in her face relaxed. I did not find any evidence in his letters that he has passed beyond the stage of mere recklessness and selfish carelessness to a state of mind that would lead to—to murder. That does not come easily even to a man who has sunk quite low, and I think that your son can still be saved. Mrs. Tunner sobbed aloud. She caught Mueller's hand and pressed a passionate kiss on it. "'Why, what are you doing?' he exclaimed, drawing away his hand. Only what any mother would do, any mother whom a stranger must teach to trust her own son. Oh, how could I, how could I have ever thought it? I can understand, said the old detective gently. You are a serious-minded woman, and your son's life thus far has been a terrible cross to you. When he came to you in that dreadful night, as he calls it, he may have come in great need, and you could not help him. He had to help himself somehow. In what way, we do not know. But we know it must have been a wrong way into what it may have led him, what may have happened with or without his own will and intention, I do not know. You do not seem to know it either, but we both know that whatever it was, it drove him to flight. All that I ask of you now is to tell me what it was that he had wanted of you, according to his own letter. 
Your love for him is so strong that it leads you to exaggerate his faults, just as a great love leads some mothers to underestimate the lack in their children. I stand outside of the question altogether, and I think that I see more clearly than you do. Oh, oh, I thank you, I thank you for those words, sobbed the woman. Yes, I can talk to you now, but only to you, for what I have to say may mean great danger for my boy. Carl came to me that evening to tell me that he had been in Vienna for several weeks, and that he had been trying in vain to find work. He told me that he had scarcely eaten anything for two days, and that he would have had to sleep in the parks had not a friend taken him in. Mrs. Tunner stopped and sank back again on the sofa, shivering. Mueller went into the next room and returned with a glass of wine, which he offered her. She drank it and then continued her story in a hopeless, monotonous voice. He asked me to help him, to give him money. All I had in the house was four crowns, which I had saved from my last salary. The rest, as usual, I had sent on the first of the month to Mrs. Menger, my former cook. She put it in the savings bank for me. Coral was not satisfied with the little I could give him. He was greatly excited and told me that a good position had been offered him, which he would lose if he couldn't raise a bond of one hundred crowns at once. I had never seen him quite so upset before. It seemed to drive him nearly crazy when I told him that I couldn't possibly get the money under three or four days. You see, Mrs. Menger would have to give notice at the savings bank and then call for the money a day or two later. "'How could Mrs. Menger get your money?' asked Mueller. "'She's taking care of it for me,' replied Mrs. Tunner with a sad smile. Four years ago, at the insistence of this good, faithful soul, I began to lay aside something for my old age. I had given Carl all my wages before that. But Katie Menger gave me no peace until I had started a savings bank account in her name, and promised to send her all I did not absolutely need just as soon as I received it. So now, if Carl came to ask for money a day or two after the first of the month, I never had any to give him. That night he was so angry that he lost his head completely. He made a demand of me, which I dismissed indignantly at once. It was so dreadful. What was it? He demanded that I should ask Mr. Erlock for the money. Well, that was nervy. Did he want you to drag the poor old man out of bed and force the money from him? Rather inconsiderate of him. That was Carl's way sighed Mrs. Tunner. He never considered anyone else when he wanted anything. Even as a baby he expected to have his own will, always, at any cost. This time, too? Mrs. Tunner grew still paler at the question. I don't know, she answered slowly, for when Carl insisted, and finally at my refusal, declared that he would go in to see Mr. Erlock himself, if I was too much of a coward to do it, I lost my patience, too, and sprang between him and the door, locking it. It was a terrible moment for me, for I almost hated my son then, but I was not yet afraid of him. I pushed him away, and I pointed to the other door, the door into the garden, and told him to go, ordered him to leave the house at once. He did so without another word for me. His face was pale, and his step unsteady. When he had gone, I rushed to the door to call him back. That is, I wanted to rush to the door, but instead I fell in a faint. I do not know how long I lay there. I awoke to find myself on the kitchen floor, and it was some little while before I could remember what had happened. I ran to the back door and called his name out into the night, but the howling of the wind drowned my voice. I dragged myself back into the hall, locked the door, and went to bed. It was long before I could get to sleep, as you might well imagine. 
I awoke again at five o'clock. At eight o'clock I discovered that Mr. Erlock was missing, and since then I have not known a quiet moment. Now I have told you all. The unfortunate woman fell back again into the sofa corner, her hands clasped in her lap. "'Take some more of this wine,' said Mueller, "'and now tell me something more. You say you do not know how long your faint lasted? Was there nothing to give you an idea of the time?' "'No, nothing. I did not even look at the clock before I crept into bed.' "'And now tell me something of your last interview with your son.' When she had obeyed his behest and somewhat controlled the stress of her emotion, Mueller ordered his carriage and they drove together to Mrs. Menger's flat. All they could find out here was that the letter received by Katie's sister from Carl Tunner had borne a Hungarian stamp. This seemed to suggest something to Mrs. Tunner, and Mueller asked her what it was. "'I think he must be in Pressburg,' she said, apparently greatly relieved. Mueller was much surprised. He stood for a moment motionless, then a faint smile curled his lips and shone in his keen eyes. He told Mrs. Menger to come to his house whenever she had any news that would interest Mrs. Tunner. Then he led the latter downstairs again to the waiting carriage. As they drove through the streets, Mueller saw that his companion was much easier in her mind. The tension in her face relaxed, and the ghost of a smile appeared now and then on her pale lips. It was a long drive, and neither spoke until they were nearly home. Then Mueller said gently, "'What were you thinking of all this time, Mrs. Tunner?' She turned to him, her smile grown brighter, a look of hope in her eyes. "'I am thinking of the crisis that this will mean for Carl, the crisis he must pass through if he is ever to be saved.' "'Then you will be satisfied with whatever I undertake, even if I find it necessary to arrest him?' "'Yes, I am willing that you should do even that. It will be good for him. I no longer believe the worst of him, and if he has committed some minor fault, it is right and just that he should atone for it.' It may be what he needs to make a decent man of him. "'I think he can be saved,' said Mueller. "'I begin to believe it, now that you think he is in Pressburg.' "'What has that got to do with it?' "'It has a good deal to do with it. Do you believe that a man who has the worst to fear would go only as far as Pressburg?' "'Oh!' "'What made you think of this city at once?' "'Because his best friend lives there, a young man who is not much better than Carl,' sighed the mother." Bella von Lankowitz considers himself an artist, and therefore justified in living a reckless life. Carl mentioned recently that he is now engaged at the Pressburg Theatre. His mother lives there. She too has been a widow for many years. I'll go there myself today. But if you don't find him there, said Mrs. Tunner hastily, please don't think that it is my fault. The Hungarian stamp reminded me of Lankowitz. I know of no other friends of my son's there, nothing else that would take him into Hungary. I understand that, said Mueller. I'll take the responsibility. They drove the rest of the way in silence. End of chapter 5, part 1